Welcome back to episode 13, part two of Dave Reichert and the 20-year hunt for the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway. You know, part one was just awesome. Also, uh, Wednesday night, September 8th, we had a live event with Dave. It was just so much fun to hear his stories, to hear what he did to help bring this case to a close, following it for 20 years. So if you didn't catch it, go to facebook.com slash Podcast. That's our Facebook page. We'll also have it up on our new YouTube page. So you can go watch this entire episode, Murph and I, Talk today for an hour talking about the case. We look at some of his pictures where he was attacked. So, folks, I know you're going to love this. Also, go check us out at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of great content coming out just, I mean, e- about every five days. We have something coming out new and exciting at all different levels. So make sure you go visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Case of the month, Q&A. We run things through the Narcometer. We actually have bonus episodes and a surprise episode, too. We don't know what we're going to do. We just put it out there and see what you guys think. Also, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Game of Crimes podcast, Instagram at Game of Crimes podcast, Twitter, Game of Crimes. And if you have any uh, questions or anything you want to shoot to us, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. So enough said, let's get back in and let's hear Dave Reichert and how he finally brings the 20-year case of the hunt for the Green River Killer to a close. And that's, but that's after too. And let's, there is one critical thing that happens during 1983 as well, because I think one of the worst months during that time, you had five women all go missing during April. Gail Lynn Matthews on uh, April 10th, Andrea Childers on April 14th, Sandra K. Gabbert on April 17th, Kimmy K. Pitzer on April 17th. But the one that got your first connection to Gary Ridgway was the disappearance of Marie Malvar on April 30th. Because go into detail on this, because this was your first contact with Gary Ridgway, because the pimp, the John, her boyfriend, saw the truck, even though he lost sight of it, they ended up finding the truck in Des Moines, Washington. So, yeah, so Malvar was, uh, Maria Malvar was a, was a prostitute. Um, she was standing on the street corner. Uh, this guy in a pickup truck comes by. And make they make a deal, and she's gonna. She gets in the truck. The pimp is driving northbound on Pacific Highway South, and Ridgeway with Malvar is driving southbound. We didn't know it was Ridgeway at the time, but he's driving southbound with Maria in the truck. The pimp sees Maria in the passenger seat, and decides that he wants to follow her so because normally what they did is they do the they do the tricks in the car they find a dead end street or behind a building somewhere on the strip they do the they do the trick and then and then uh, he'd bring her back to drop her off back on the street again <clears throat> but sometimes he was able to talk him into going to his house sometimes john's are uh, able to talk him into going into a motel room, and if they're you know if they need money quickly, they'll do this, which is not of course the smartest thing to do. But um, so the the boyfriend she um, the the pimp who is described by 
himself as the boyfriend, uh, turns around and follows, tries to follow the truck. He lost it. Uh, so he decides he couldn't find it again. So he decides to call her father and say, hey, I've lost Maria. I can't find her. I saw her in a pickup truck. So the father comes down. Now the father and the pimp are in the car together looking for Maria. The father thinks that this is a boyfriend. And um, they drive around. They finally find what they think is the pickup parked uh, at Ridgeway's house. So they call the Des Moines Police Department because it's in the city of Des Moines. The Des Moines officers show up. They tell him what happened. They go to the door. The cops go to the door, knock on the door, and he comes to the door. <clears throat> they ask him, "And were you? did you just have a young girl in your truck? Were you out on the highway? Uh, he says, of course, he denies all of this. No, it wasn't me. I've been here all night. They can't prove anything. You can't break into the house and and search his house. They don't have anything at all. They don't even know it's the right truck or not. It just looks like the truck. And so the Des Moines police leave. But we don't we don't know about this incident till much later. We don't know this has happened. Uh, I don't even think that, you know, they, they took any kind of report on this. It's just a call, the suspicious circumstances call, right? And um but we learn later, of course, this is Ridgeway's house, it's Ridgeway's truck. Malvar was actually inside the house, already dead. Uh, they had been in a huge fight, and Malvar bit him. He tells us this later. And uh, in order to hide the bite mark on his forearm, he poured battery acid uh, on his arm to, to hide the bite mark. You know, the one thing Ridgeway had going for him, too, is... Um he could appear to be very unassuming. He was nobody outstanding. You, you look in a crowd, and he's not somebody who stood out because of size, because of, you know, flashy guy. In fact, he cultivated that, didn't he? He cultivated being forgettable yep. and, and non-threatening. Yep. And he, he told us in interviews, you know, that, hey, I, uh, they asked me if I was a cop, and he said, I just start laughing and go, you know, no. And in fact, in one case, he, he'd show his... Um, Kenworth trucking you know, business card, you know, his ID card to get into the plant. Um, because he said, yeah, I'm not a cop. I'm, I work at Kenworth trucking. Here's my, here's my pass to get into the parking lot to get to work. Um, you know, he, he uh, was nondescript, you know, little rat, really, just kind of running around the street like a little rat. He could move in, in that world um, very indiscreetly, and he, what he would do is, uh, in the mornings he'd go to work early, he'd pick up a prostitute sometimes, not every morning, obviously, but sometimes he'd pick up a prostitute, uh, have sex with her, and, um, and in one case, he did that, he picked up a um, prostitute, had sex with her, killed her, left her in the back of his truck, went to work, left the body in the back of the truck, with a, he had a canopy on it, did his four hours in the morning, had a lunch break, got in his truck, drove to a dead-end street, had sex with her, with the dead body, in the back of his truck, drove back to work, finished out his four hours, his full shift, got back in the truck, drove, uh, started to drive home, had sex with the dead body, 
and then and then dumped her and drove home, had dinner, and watched TV with his son and his wife. Oh my gosh, what a sick son of a gun! Yeah. Well, and he would also use his son as a ruse to uh, placate the prostitutes to say, "Hey, look, I can't be a cop. I've got my son with me." I mean this this is this is how much of a sociopath Ridgeway was. Is that he was willing to use his son as a tool to get women to come with him so that he could kill them. And that's what it, that's, that's, if people, and I want to make sure this podcast, we're not here to, we have to talk about Ridgeway, but I want to talk about your story. We've got to include Ridgeway in this. If people want to learn more about Gary Ridgeway, there's plenty of specials, plenty of stuff out there. But I think it's fair to say is that this guy was able to cultivate the type of persona and live the kind of lifestyle that made finding a serial killer extremely difficult for law enforcement. Because like you say, it was all stranger based, uh, very little to connect him. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why if people think it's so easy to find a serial killer, wait till you've got somebody that doesn't leave evidence that as you found out later was actually clipping the fingernails to make sure nothing was under the skin yep. was going to great lengths and extents, changing the tires on his truck to, so that you couldn't find the same tires. Um, he was going to great extents to not get caught and he was able to do it for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. The, the. The, the the way that we caught him, can we talk about that real quick? Because it, are you ready for let's, that? Let's let's kind of work into that because I think what I want to do is that we're going to get to that culmination. But I think I think the, what led to his capture, and I think you should talk about the when you did run into him, you ended up running into Gary a couple more times during this investigation, including him taking a polygraph, collecting evidence that would later be tied into this. But during that whole time, I want to back up a little bit because. You finally get this task force reconstituted. Melvin Foster still kind of interjects himself in there. But I wanted to ask you about this one thing. You were um, three weeks after the task force was reconstituted. Um, a ninth victim was discovered, which was Shonda Lee Summers. And you wanted to really be proactive. You wanted to say, let's go out there and let's start searching all these sites. Let's start doing all these things. Let's not wait to find bodies. Let us go to the most logical areas and find these bodies. You got overruled. Yeah. I also wanted to stake out I wanted to stake these these places out even even more. I also wanted to one of the things we came up with and and these are, you know, us detectives just having a talk and then I as I was always the one that was chosen as the kind of the, I'm the going to deliver the message. <laughs> so my relationship sometimes with the command staff got a little bit shaky at times because I was always asked to be the guy to go in there and and uh, say, hey, what about this or what about that? And why aren't we doing this? And why aren't we doing that? One of the things that, that we wanted to do was to uh, plant in the news media that we had found another body and then stake that place out to see if he'd come back, if he, if he would go to that site, um, just to see what the heck was going on. I mean, we had so many different ideas um, that I, I think it was all about money and it was all about resources uh, we had so many uh tip sheets to follow up so many victims to identify so many witnesses to interview we had people on the street posing as uh, you know homeless to to surveil the strip area and the downtown prostitution area because we had girls missing from there 
the north of Seattle, we had another area open up there. Um, and we were finding bodies now spread out all over the county. So um, I, you know, looking back on, on that question you asked me, I can sort of understand why they overruled me on those things because they're looking at it from a whole different perspective than I was. I'm just, you know, if, if you can't do it, then get more detectives in here is like my answer to, right? So every <laughs> cop says, right, like if you can't do it, I, you know, I can't do my job if you don't give me, I need this, I need that, I need the latest, you know, in the newest gun, the newest bulletproof vest, I need this and I need that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I we, we had our times of, of really, you know, some serious frustrations, but we just kept going. And that was a that was the county executive. That was you know some people that would come in and say, "Hey, you're spending too much money on this." It would depend upon the sheriff that was in there. But I'll tell you, one of the key key events I see happening here is January '84. You talk about you start plussing up the task force again. You've got uh, two more dozen detectives added. You've got about thirty five to forty full time people. What would have been the impact on this case? If it had not been reduced, had you been able to keep that people, do you have a feeling today is that if it had not been reduced down to just Dave Reichert, the Lone Ranger, you might have been able to get some of those early breaks and solve this rather than having this extend out as long as it did? I, I, I mean, it's, you know, as you know, it's, I mean, it's so hard to go back and Monday morning quarterback all that, but I, I can't help but think we could have at least stayed on top of all the tips a lot better. Um, if I had some, if I had some help, I mean, I, I know that the end of September that I had to go back, I had to keep asking for help and finally they relented and gave me help. So, um, you know, I wish we'd had stayed together. We, we, the end of 82, uh, there were a lot of us who said we, you know, it's just, this is the wrong thing to do is to right. disband this because how to me, I was trying to figure out how can you how can you disband a task force of people investigating the death deaths of six human beings. I, I couldn't understand how you could put that on pause. There's six people have died. Well, so, didn't they learn the lesson from Ted Bundy that you don't stop at six? He didn't stop at six, right? You know? And and that was and that was repeated over and over and over again. It's look, we know this guy is going to continue killing. Bob Keppel was was a, a huge voice in this coming in and saying, look, I, I know, I worked Ted Bundy case, and he he didn't quit. This guy cannot quit. He's not going to quit. You're going to find more bodies. Uh, but this the, the, the resources and money thing just sort of was overwhelming, I think, for uh, the council. When we started operating the Enhanced Task Force in January of 84, we're talking about uh, as we started to get things really moving, $2 million a year. And back then, um, even today, $2 million a year is a lot of money. But uh, I, I remember the county executive coming out. I don't remember the time frame, probably in the 86, 87 era for a dog and pony show. And we put together, a, you know, this dog and pony show for him. And at the end, he just said, um, well, you guys really appreciate all the hard work you're doing, but we're going to have to start, you know, cutting back the number of detectives investigating this case. We can't continue to spend $2 million a year and not have any result. So the end result is more bodies. Makes no sense. The result, <laughs> right, result was more bodies. And 
the FBI was called in um, sometime in '86, I think, if I if I remember correctly, because this is the frame time frame where uh, we're getting a lot of heat, and the sheriff's getting a lot of heat to bring in the FBI. So the FBI finally came in with detectives from all around the country, some with a little experience, some with just out of the academy. Um, the ones out of the academy, uh, <laughs> I remember one young agent coming up to me saying, hey, I'm reading this autopsy report. Um, what's this What's this Riger Midas or Riger <laughs> Bordas and, and um, Lividity? Um, what, what's, you know, what is that? So, I mean, that's, and I, you know, I'm not trying to make fun of the FBI, but that, that young agent, you know, it's like being a patrol cop coming into the middle of a, you know, serial, it's this young agent hasn't even been, you know, had experience. So, it, you know, they were going to put him, I guess, following up tip sheets or something, but, um, they stayed six months and were gone. They came up with a guy they thought was the guy. He matched the profile. We we uh, grabbed him. One of the agents uh, who became a very good friend of mine, Bob Agnew. Um, this guy was sharp, and I was I was honored and proud to be uh, working with him. He and I were assigned to pick up the wife of this guy and and take her down to the FBI offices in Seattle. Female officers. Uh, stripped her, took body samples. We interviewed her for hours, and we came out of there shaking our heads, going, "This is we're way up the wrong tree here." We knew we were when we went out there. Uh, the FBI command, uh, the SAC, our command staff had bought a bottle of wine, a cake. I mean, we for because we had him now. We were interrogating him as a team of one of our detectives and an agent. Um, everybody that was hot on this guy expected him to be, was going to be solved that night. And the rest of us are sitting in the back now and we're going, this is absolutely crazy. This is not and, the guy. And if people could see the way you just did that, you did the same thing. You cross your arms, you sit back, and you go, yeah, right. This isn't going to age well. Just like the wine or the champagne cork you yep. popped in that cake, it's not going to go well. <laughs> no, it was it was bad. And uh, once they once that all fell apart, uh, they they pulled out. So they, they left. Um, but they, they actually, I mean, they... You know, they came in, they helped us organize some things, but um, in the end, it didn't help us. Well, but, you know, at the end of the day, too, people don't realize, too, there is no federal statute on homicide in terms of just straight, you know, forward homicide. We get into terrorism and stuff later, but there's no authority for the FBI to get involved unless there's an issue of crossing state lines like kidnapping or transporting which actually comes into play later. I want to highlight something here real quick, because you talked about finding all those bodies. I mean, between uh, March 21st of 1984 and April 2nd of 1984, there were seven bodies that were found. And one of them 
was was initially called Jane Doe B10 B for Bones Jane Doe Bones 10 was later eventually identified as Wendy Stevens. So you had Wendy Stevens, age 14, Cheryl Lee Wims, age 18, Dolores Williams, age 17, Debbie Athernathy, 26, Terry Milligan, 16, Sandra Gabbert, 17, Alma Ann Smith, 18. I mean, you've these are all extremely young women. And one of the things that came out of this, too, was which I thought was, it's not interesting, you've got this multiple homicide scene, but it was... You used the U.S. Border Patrol and an agent by the name of Joel Hardin. Oh, yeah, I remember so Joel. So tell people, tell people what you came across, how you came across this resource. And I mean, when I read this, it's like, this is freaking black magic. How does this guy know this stuff? Yeah, well, you know, Border Patrol is trained in some pretty unique, um, with some pretty unique uh, talents. And tracking, we use dogs too, by the way, you know, we used um, cadaver dogs, they, they call them, um, and we used tracking dogs, uh, but we, and I forget who first suggested calling the Border Patrol. It was probably in one of our, you know, weekly meetings that we had. Someone came up with the idea, probably knew Joel, I'm trying to remember, but um, beside the point, but uh, Joel is one of their top trackers, who, of course, on the border, that's what you know, what they do is they track human beings. So they can tell, you know, I can look at a broken twig and think it's just a broken twig, but he can tell when it was snapped just by looking at um, the, at where the, where the twig is broken, how long it's been broken, which way the, the person was walking, uh, when it was broken, where they changed direction, how much he might, uh, the person might weigh. Um, if he retraced their steps, uh, I mean, he can look at a weed and, and, and just see whether or not it was crushed. Is it laying down flat against the ground because uh, it's, we've had heavy snow or rain, or did somebody actually step there? They, they can tell the difference between all of that. At one of the sites, I think it was the cemetery, uh, we were trying to figure out how in the world he got one this one body down the bank up against a log and buried with her was a dog at at her head uh we had to actually rope up and go backwards downhill and tie ourselves off to process this scene it was so steep but he could tell us how he walked down there um with the body what direct i mean it was just amazing the the talent that, that he had see he was he was helpful in trying to help us see the crime scene, you know, and, and where, and that's helpful because that's where you start looking for evidence. If you can tell where the suspect walked, you know, it gives you another area. Um, did he walk around it a couple of times, drop the body, pick it up again, move it, all of that stuff. Now you've got, if he's dropped it, picked it up, then there's another place that you need to look as to whether or not there's any evidence that's fallen there. So that's that's an interesting um, aspect you brought up. I haven't talked about that for quite a long time, but I remember Joel very well, very sharp. And Steve, I want to bring you in on this, because I know you've used this technology too, and I'm setting you up there, Sheriff. I mean, Steve, when you brought in, how many times did you end up polygraphing somebody like cooperating sources or other people to verify their story? How often would you use a polygraph on your cases? Uh, well, you know, the challenge was getting the polygrapher. 
because we didn't have that many in DEA back then. And, and uh, But whenever you could get them, I mean, it was everything from suspects to uh, we started vetting the when we were in Columbia, we started vetting the Columbia police officers that we were working with to see if we could catch them in any deceptive behavior or deceptive statements. Um, you wanted one on your staff full time. But, you know, you, it's just like a specialized tech person. You had to request them out of Washington. You had to wait on funding. You had to get on their schedule. Um, but, man, they were worth their weight in gold. Well, and the reason I asked Steve about that, Sheriff, is that in uh, between uh, Ridgeway was initially contacted by Des Moines back in April of 83, and it was May of 84 when he was eventually brought in for questioning. Um, at that time, you didn't know, he, he admitted he frequented the strip, you didn't know about the Des Moines report, but he did one thing, he agreed to a polygraph, and then the, for people who might think it's shocking, he passed the polygraph, but I want you to talk about why it's not shocking that somebody like a Gary Ridgway would be able to pass a polygraph. Yeah, I think he passed it twice, if I recall correctly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, um, yeah. A little bit different than Steve. We did have a polygraph operator uh, in our uh, homicide uh, robber unit, major crimes unit, uh, and he was used a lot by all the detectives. The value, really, that they bring is um, they're they're a tool, right? They're not infallible. So it's not shocking to find that somebody could... uh, pass and be guilty or fail and be innocent. Uh, we've all had that experience. They could be telling the truth. Um, the The real power in the polygraph for us in, in local law enforcement was um, the intimidation that that machine brought uh, in the process of uh, questions that were being asked. If you were guilty, I've seen many suspects who um under the pressure would just say shit i know know i'm failing this i give up i did it (laughs) so it was really it just kind of put the pressure on them just just to confess because they're they're going ah what the hell i'm i'm they've got me and and uh so that was uh, i've seen that happen many times but with ridgeway it's especially not shocking once we learn the real story behind him and the fact that he's not, he, he doesn't, there's no guilt. He, he doesn't care about killing anybody. So when you ask him, did you kill, you know, so-and-so, uh, and he says no, there's a flat line there. Uh, he's, he, if they would have asked him, did you steal a ring? <laughs> did you steal a hubcap? Did you steal a, he's more, he has more, more guilt about, uh, you know, stealing some uh, inanimate object than taking the life of a human being. So um, he's a psychopath with no emotion, no guilt. And that's what I was getting at, the the psychopath, sociopath. I was, uh, for a while, I did some instruction in behavior analysis, and I ended up training for a while out at the, uh, training some people out at the National Security Agency on damage assessment. And that's one of the challenges, too. They, They actually train people in espionage involved in spying on how to pass polygraphs. and But one of the ways to do it was like Aldra James, kind of make friends with the polygrapher so that if it can go one way or the other, you know, they'll view this. But Ridgeway was totally different, to your point. The reason there was no response, no emotional response, is because he was completely sociopathic. He didn't care. 
And you could you cannot get somebody to if if they don't care and there's no emotional response, the the polygraph is you, to your point and and Steve, it's not infallible. It's a tool. But with Ridgeway, the reason he passed is not because the polygraphers did anything wrong. And by the way, something very interesting. I found on a site his original charts that the polygrapher ran. And you take a look at those things, and I've, I'm not an expert, you know, I've read a few, and it's like, you look at that and you go, dude was just, he's a, he, he's a stone-cold killer, yeah. and that's how he passed the polygraph. Right, yeah. And when we asked him, when we finally got to, in, in, you know, interview him, with his attorneys in the room, obviously, because we made that deal, uh, why did you kill? He said, because I could. I mean, there's no other reason. He, that's he just well, he said he enjoyed killing yeah, he, just, he was yeah. going for the body count right i mean he, he did it because he he wanted to and he could we've talked about and one of the things i noticed too is through the task forces you had these valleys and peaks you know august or uh august 16th you know after the the three bodies are found uh, and then wendy caulfield and uh Deborah Bonner, you know, you've got the task force back up and running because it's still shades of Bundy. Then it comes down again. Then it comes back up again. But eventually, even with all the body count, I mean, we're up to, we're getting close to, you know, we're in the 40s now. Eventually, this task force comes back down, but not before um, you actually have, like I said, you find a lot more bodies. Um, there's a lot of things that you get into. And actually, one of the things I want to talk to you about it's about this time. It's somewhere around, I think, 1986. Um, you're getting angry. And you, I mean, you threatened to quit because you just got so angry about what was going on. What, what was happening with you at that time that you finally said, I'm done with this. Can't take it anymore. Um, I don't, do you have something specific? Because, man, there's a lot of things I can think of, but I don't know <laughs> what you're... Well, it happened after the uh, FBI uh, briefings about uh, Bill, the B Bill McLean story. You know, they built a case, and they were overconfident. He passed the polygraph. You were angry about all the lost time with McLean, and then you threatened to quit after the McLean incident. Yeah. Um, I mean, there. I, I think with any investigation, you have uh, ups and downs. I'm sure Steve... You know, and Pablo Escobar, you had a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. You, you, you consider giving up. You know, you're thinking, yep. we were thinking, hey, just let the guy surrender again. Who cares? Let's just all go home. Yep. But you can't do that. No, you can't do that. I mean, you're human. And so you have, you have this roller coaster ride. I mean, we had evidence we thought was going to be the thing that, that was going to solve this case. Microscopic, um, little plastic glass you know they were they were small um plastic i'm sorry microscopic glass beads that we thought was going to solve this case and it turns out everybody's got microscopic glass beads on them because they use them when they spray paint the white lines on the highways the yellow strips down the middle of the highways they bounce all over the place they're just in that in the air and the atmosphere and so everyone has these stuck to their shoes or their socks that's what we were told back in the 80s i don't know what they use today but uh melvin foster was was a high we thought we were going to you know get it then the fbi thought they were getting it with mclean and when we finally get to mclean and the fbi is coming in basically some of us felt like the detectives that had been there for a while we're just being ignored. It was all about the FBI thought it was McLean. We're all going after McLean. This is what we're going to do. And um, 
uh, you know, when they came in and when 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 they had the enhanced task force, um, it was a time for everybody to go back and look at all the 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 previous years, 82 and 83, all the documentation that we had collected. There was a lot of criticism uh, on my work. And um, and then they came in and divided my work up between themselves and criticized this and criticized that. And I'm, and I'm going, hey, you put yourself in my place by myself and see if you could do a better job. And so that I think that all kind of was just building uh, for me, and uh, and I think a lot of the detectives felt like they weren't being listened to, but I but I do think it's important at this point to say there, you know, there were times where I know I was intense. I mean, I really when I'm focused on doing something, I can get uh, driven. Uh, I guess is the, you know obsessed with it, and that's sort of what people saw me as. They were getting worried about me and my health, uh, mental health, and and I, you know, was just trying, at that point continually trying to convince people, look, I'm fine. I want to get this guy. I don't want. I want to quit screwing around. And um, I I know that I may not have expressed myself to my con- command staff in a very professional <laughs> manner sometimes. <laughs> That's a euphemism. <laughs> you told them to go. Yeah. Oh, piss off, you wankers. <laughs> so, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while and this opportunity on this show. And I, and I, you know how, you know, as a Christian, you start to look back on things and, and you want, you want to make it right. And so I've been thinking about about this. I, I just want to apologize to if, if any of my old <laughs> command staff folks are are listening to this show. Um, I, I know there were there were a few times there where you know I deserve to be chastised uh, pretty severely because I, I, I I'm you know I'm not trying to make excuses, but you know it was intense. There was a lot of pressure. And body after body, day after day, uh, you get emotional about it. And if things aren't going the way you think they should be going, cutting this and and you know, at one point they were they were beginning to cut the task force back, and uh, they were talking about getting rid of the evidence that we had collected. And and I said, what the hell are you talking about? Because this case opens up someday, and you've destroyed the evidence. The defense has a perfect opportunity to say, where's discovery? Well, we destroyed it. Not guilty. Or not chargeable. Jeez. Or, you know, goes it's away. It's not a flipping auto theft. It's a homicide. Right. But we, you know, again, 10,000 items. The biggest item of evidence that we collected that that I made a decision on was we had to call a pickup truck in and a backhoe to pick up this stump, tree stump, that had a a, a cloth impression into the mud of, of the ball of mud on the root on the root ball, and so rather than lose it, I took photographs of it. I didn't want to try to plaster cast it because that's what we did back then. Out in the in the field, I I packaged it all up hoisted it up, put it in the back of a truck, and we took it to the property room, and they were going, what the hell do we do with a you know a tree stump? But my thing is, I, I'm taking anything that I can take that I think is going to solve this case, and um, I'm, I'm thinking that tree stump's probably gone by now, but uh, <laughs> you know, when we, I mean, I, I had boxes of wet earth 
like you know like fudge type thick that I packaged up and put in into these cardboard boxes and then waited till they dried out so we could go sift them because you just couldn't do it. We collected um, bird's nests so we could get, get hairs and fibers from the bird's nests that were nearby the body sites. So they're taking human hair and fibers, they're building their nest. We went through those, went through bird's nests. I searched a, one of the scenes followed a small animal uh, burrowing hole and found a petrified fingertip in this hole. That was what we identified her with. At another scene, the, about the only piece of bone that we found was a kneecap that had a fracture in it. We happened to have the medical records of one of the missing girls. She happened to have a broken kneecap. We had that x-ray and matched that x-ray with the kneecap that we found um, at the scene. Um, at another site, all we found was a skull um, and, a, and a femur. Uh, a tree scout finds a femur in the woods, way up in the Cascades, up a logging road. And uh, I get the call. Everybody else is busy. Medical examiner says, Dave, just go up there, take a look at the femur. By that time, I could identify you know, human bones from just about anything. Uh, even if they're chewed off at the ends by animals, um, we were very similar uh, to to the structure of bare bare bones, especially in the finger areas. Uh, deer bones can look a lot like our our, our arm bones, um, but there are also some differences there. If you you know you're trained, you can pick that up. So. I went out, I looked at this bone, I said, it's definitely human, called the medical examiner, he met me out there, we went up in the woods, we're walking around, <clears throat> and uh, we, I mean, this is a needle in a haystack, we're in the middle of the North, Ca or the, you know, the Central Cascade Mountains, looking for a bone, and um, at about that moment, the, this is a true story, the clouds part, the sun comes through the canopy of the trees, lands on a tree stump, that's about 10 feet high. This is like an old growth cut where you could see the old lo loggers had cut huge um, uh, cuts in the side so they could stand on it and cut these trees off. At the, on the top of that stump, in the middle of that sunbeam of light, was a skull. And we identified her from that. All we found was that skull and the femur. So all of those things are going on, and I, you know, I know I got sidetracked on all the evidence that we caught, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I did get frustrated. I would have never quit. There's no way I, I would quit this case. I there, I couldn't quit this case. I was thinking about it all the all the time. At one point, they were thinking about asking me to leave because I was so intense. And I, as I said, they were worried about my health. But I convinced them uh, that I, you know, I was fine and I wanted to stay. Um, but. I also remember being on vacation once. I, I, I decided, okay, I'm going to, my wife wanted to go to Las Vegas. I went. I didn't want to go. I went, and sure enough, they found a body. I got myself back on an airplane, flew back to Seattle as soon as they called me uh, because I didn't want to miss it. I, I, I couldn't. So it becomes all consuming. It was all consuming. I just couldn't stop. And even today, you know, I'm doing these things. I just got an email a couple of days ago from some woman who's mad at me because I didn't, I didn't solve it quick enough. Um, I get calls or emails about this almost weekly. 
Um, just We just finished a Netflix shoot that we're doing another documentary on just a few days ago. Now, I want to mention one of the guys that's been a key player in this thing, too, before we end this. Uh, Detective Tom Jensen, man, that, if you want to talk about a computer brain, that's that's the guy that had the computer brain. He, he can't. Uh, that guy, we were so blessed and fortunate to have him uh, in the middle of this investigation. Um, and he's the guy that after our, they closed it down, they start closing down the, 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 the task force. In 87, I think, we lose a few detectives. 88, we start losing some more. In 89, we're cut pretty drastically. By March of 1990, it's me, Tom Jensen, and Jim Doyen. Tom Jensen and Jim Doyen get uh, reassigned back into the homicide and robbery unit. Tom's job is to monitor, because we're getting so many tip sheets still, monitor the tip sheets and the, and, and the tip, tips that are coming in. Now we have a computer, obviously, by this time. Um, and, and Jim's role, along with Tom, is if anything of significance comes in, one or both of them will follow it up. But there's not much investigation being done. It's mostly case management by Tom, keeping all the facts straight, keeping the evidence, you know, uh, making sure that's all documented and updated in new computers as they come along. Um, I was fortunate right at that same time that they got transferred to homicide and robbery. Otherwise, I'd have gone there, too. I got promoted, and I went to patrol. The area they sent me to, assigned me to as a patrol sergeant on graveyard shift was the strip. So what do you think I spent my time doing? <laughs> looking looking for the Green River Killer. Yep. You're not going too far. Well, let's let's kind of roll back a little bit because there's a couple things because we're now starting to come into the home stretch here and there's a couple things that really start this is what's going to set the case or the stage for this case being solved later and it's as you have people go back you had detective matt haney doing some research you had randy mullinex uh had interviewed ridgeway in 84 and you start piecing these things together and you realize ridgeway has had a lot of contacts with several of your victims and people who are still missing in the case. So at some point you put between, and you know, in the uh, uh, winter of 86 to 87, you start putting Ridgeway back under surveillance. And then eventually, you know, it comes down to the point where on April 8th, 1987, you've got enough probable cause at this point. You've got a search warrant. You're now going to go in and search Gary's house. And one of the reasons is, is he's cruising all the right places. He's doing all the right things. But let me ask you, before we get into the search warrant, during any of that surveillance, did you ever know or did he ever admit later that he had made that he was being surveilled? Did he ever know? No. You know, that's right. yeah, that's the thing. You know, cops always think I've been made and most often not. <laughs> but uh, no, he didn't know. And and really kind of amazing, and I'd say amazingly, not in a good sense, but it's like a lot of the miss, women who went missing, a lot of the women who were killed, a lot of that didn't happen during that time. So there was nothing for the surveillance to pick up right. on. It's kind of like, unfortunately, there was this gap to where you don't want you don't want somebody to be picked up and killed. But had he picked up somebody and you spotted it, you could have been out there to capture him before he did that. But it all leads up into. What happens is this search of his house uh, at April 8th of 1987, 
He's very cooperative. He goes downtown. But tell me about the strategy, what you guys did. And you were still leading the case at this point, right? You're still uh, the lead investigator. So walk us through now, because I want people to understand one of the most critical pieces of evidence that is used to solve this case comes out of this search warrant. One of one of the things that I think is important to you know to build the the probable cause search warrant uh, warrant uh, effort was um, one of the victims of Ridgeway survived, and her name was Rebecca, and she escapes from him, talks him out of killing her. She's like the most luckiest. We always see you know not always but often see. Um, that there's somebody who, you know, we were looking for that person. She comes in and reports. She picks him out of a uh, out of a mugshot lineup, and and uh, and Ridgeway's interviewed about her, and he admits to picking her up, and um, but she doesn't want to press charges. This happened in 1982. She waited till 1984 to report this assault. So two years later, she comes in and reports this assault. Uh, but doesn't, I don't want to press charges. So that was, you know, we just took the information. We also know that he was arrested in early 1982 for patronizing a, patronizing a prostitute. So even before the bodies were being found, he had been arrested. Of course, he wasn't on anybody's radar for doing anything then, but later we discover he's on the arrest list. And and if you today see it's hard because people think okay if he's on that if if you had that and he's on the arrest list you should have known that right away well again we didn't have computers uh and in 86 when we finally did get a computer we printed out lists we had we had a list of people who owned pickup trucks a list of people who were arrested for patronizing a prostitute we had a list of people who had a fishing license because of the green river we had a list of people that assaulted women and other lists. You, all we could do was to print those lists out. The computer couldn't make any comparisons. So if you're thinking about computers today versus computers then, erase that from your mind because that's there's no <laughs> there's no comparison. Um, we printed this out. Uh, these printouts were you know probably 18 inches wide. They had perforated sides. You two guys might remember those sort of oh, printouts. Yeah. Then we just laid them out. They were folded in a in a stacks, right? We laid out maybe three lists: the truck, the prostitute arrest, and uh, fishing license. Let's say, and we they they would go for the length of the hallway, or registered truck owners for Washington State. Then we'd have two or three detectives on each one of those lists on the floor, on hands and knees, with a highlighter, and we'd call out the license plate. If we saw, if they found it on another list, then that was a priority uh, A suspect. Dirt, birth dates, names, addresses, we'd call them all out and look at those and try to make comparisons between those lists. That's how we, that's how we tried to connect the dots on some of these guys. So to connect the dots on Ridgeway with the things that we could to build that probable cause, cause case, that's the kind of stuff we were doing to try to make that connection. So we did get probable cause. We searched his place of, you know, the Kenworth trucking. We searched his locker there. We took a pair of coveralls. Um, we searched his home. We were taking, you know, carpet, um, looking for fibers, uh, you know, whatever we thought could possibly be connected. Bed sheets, pillowcases, blankets, towels. Um, 
uh, we searched his yard, and then we also searched him. And we wanted a blood uh, draw from him, but the judge said that there just wasn't enough there for us to get a blood draw. It was too invasive. So he allowed us to have him chew on a gauze. He chewed on the gauze, and we put that gauze into a test tube, and we froze it. And that was in 1987. And just so people understand, this is before DNA. Uh, you, nobody knows how to spell really DNA at this point. Right. And this is when all you could do is blood type people to say, well, they have the con- they have a blood type or they're a secretor or non-secretor. Right. I mean, there there was very limited ways to really narrow it down to a specific person rather than a general group. But, you know, Sheriff, you you did an interesting thing there, which is um, I came out of Kansas. I actually, one of my friends was one of the investigators on the BTK task force, uh, Dennis Rader. And one of the decisions they made even back then when they were collecting blood was not to test it because even then when they tested it, it would destroy the entire sample and there wouldn't be anything left for later. So they made a decision which people, you know, chided them for at the time, said, well, you should have tested that. Had they tested it, they would not have had the evidence later to connect Dennis Rader to this. So I think what you did was one of the most strategic things was, and that's sometimes all you can do is you have to collect it and you have to sit on it. But how excruciating was it? To, to, to collect all of this stuff and sit on it, you know, and realize that there's nothing we can do with it right now, but knowing in the back of your mind, someday there'll be a technology that'll allow us to do this. Yeah, so we, we, uh, we knew he was a uh, um, non-secretor, so we couldn't get a blood type off his saliva. But what we did know, too, is that, um, I don't know if I mentioned or not, but two victims on the river at the river, I think uh, Marsha Chapman and Opal Mills, um, we were able to get, those were those bodies at the river were, were the, the freshest bodies. They were intact. All the other bodies found later were skeletons, pretty much, or they were chunks of white, chalky flesh um, where, you know, you couldn't really tell if it was human or not uh, unless you were there and you could see the human bones, bones kind of um you know zigzagging in out of the out of the 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 chalky decomposing flesh um but those victims early victims we were able to to collect the medical examiner was able to collect spermatozoa and those samples were frozen and and protected and kept frozen uh and until uh, 1999 we decided because of DNA that we could test them. We went to one of two labs back then that were doing testing, the only two labs that were testing. And we had a detective fly back with the, with the gauze and with the two samples. And they looked at them and said, too fragile, too minute. And the science isn't there to pull the DNA out of those samples that you have. So then we were told to wait. So that waiting period was from 99 until March of 2001. We finally get a call from the state lab that says, hey, we've got the science now that can do this DNA testing. Yeah, so we're going to save that for a minute because there's two other, I think, two to three other events that lead up to this. And and one of them is not related to evidence at all. It's how you were starting to use the media to get your message out. And one of these things I thought was kind of funny, 
she passed away recently. She used to have a big show, but it was Sally Jesse Raphael. Jeez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we have our answer there about how this is going to go. Uh, so let's talk about, because Steve has some uh, experience, too, with people on talk shows and, uh, you know, uh, people, you know, wanting to interview you and do things. And so this thing was, as, as they say, the technical term is a Charlie Foxtrot, you know, it's a clusterfuck, you know? And, uh, so tell us about, you went out there with, uh, the mother of Tracy Ann Winston. Yeah. Murdy Winston. And you were on the show and I, first of all, just tell us about the whole experience. But then I also want you to talk about the, quote, so-called expert who really got under your skin. Yeah. Well, I, uh, the department was actually contacted uh, by, her, by Sally Jesse Raphael's show and <clears throat> uh, producer. And uh, the captain was asked by the sheriff, hey, would Dave do this? And... Uh, I wasn't too sure about it, but, um, you know, I I figured, okay, well, maybe there's an opportunity here for us to get, you know, get the news out there. Maybe we get, I mean, I was looking for anything. Um, The sheriff approved it, and um, we knew there was a possibility that I could get ambushed, and uh, it, that, that, that happened, uh, but we were sort of expecting it. So, Murdy, Winston, uh, very articulate, very bright uh, lady. Mom and dad both employed a uh, good family. This is one of those families where there wasn't that sort of domestic violence or abuse going on at home. These were This was a hardworking mom and dad whose daughter just got caught up uh, in the wrong crowd. And so Marty traveled back there with me we hadn't found her daughter yet, and uh, there was there was another case going on, I think, out of Massachusetts at the time, and so we had another mother or two whose daughters were missing. I was the only detective on the panel, and then there was this other gentleman, well, this other guy, <laughs> who was there, who was definitely brought in to be an instigator, and... Um, we're we're really the moms are just so emotional at talking about their daughters, and I'm talking about the, as we're talking today about how the investigators are involved and and committed to solving these cases, and and this guy eventually turns to one of the mothers and says, "How can you even call yourself a mother? Your daughter, you know, is out on the street." Why is she even out there? You're not much of a mother at all. I mean, he just starts attacking her. And, oh. and so this it, this blows up. And as it's blowing up, it comes to a commercial cut. And, and so she cuts to commercial, Sally does. And then the argument really heats up uh, between the moms and this guy. Murdy and I are just sitting there going, okay, I'm, we're not getting in the middle of this. But... One of the moms is over here. The guy is on the other side, so they're screaming across the front of Murdy and I. And then they get a five, four, three, two, one coming back live, and they straighten up. And uh, the discussion kind of goes on. But uh, what happens at the end of the show? The, the show is ending, and 
if you watch it all the way through where the credits are playing, Sally, Jesse Raphael is going to each of the, the, the persons that are appearing on the show and shaking their hands, thanking them for appearing. And when she gets to me, I grabbed her hand and I pulled her down a little closer to me than she would have wanted me to. And I said, you know what you did is bullshit. I'm never coming back on this show again. And uh, I mean, I... There was an adjective you left out there, Sheriff. There was, so there was some... The mic was cut. But uh, I let her know I was really... Because they all presented it as though they were going to, you know, be helpful to the investigation. When in fact, it was... I don't know how you can do that. How, how you can be that kind of a personality and use people. That's what she did is use those moms. I felt sorry for him. Who's that antagonist that was there? What you know? Who was he to tell her she's a bad mother? Yeah, I have no idea <laughs> where Jack. What that guy's experience with where he came from? He doesn't know this woman. He doesn't know the daughter. Doesn't know the circumstances. Yeah, it was it was a sad mm -hmm. display. That's pathetic. Yeah, pathetic. Well, you had one more media event. And on this one, I've got to take you to task over something on this next one. It's Manhunt Live, December 7th, 1988, with Patrick Duffy. Of all the stereotypical things you could have done, you're wearing the traditional cop stash. You have got the cop <laughs> stash going on. <laughs> I know. You know, you know why, why I had a mustache? Um, so the FBI profile came back and said that when this person is caught, there needs to be somebody with a little bit of senior appearance to them, an older, an older detective <laughs> to interview this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm 30, I don't know, 33, 34, whatever age I was at the time. Uh, how can I make myself look older? Because there's no way in the world I'm going to let somebody else interview this guy. So I grew a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and it was cheesy. I have to tell you, I have a picture of it. I know. It's on YouTube, folks. Go take a look at it. It is, oh, I, I would be embarrassed to have a cheesy mustache like well, that. you know what? Uh, at least my nose wasn't shoved across my face like yours. <laughs> there you, you go. Know, you tell him. Yeah. You tell him, Dave. Yeah. But I... <laughs> I'm still, I still got the looks though. No, no, you know, I, so. you know my husband, I'm, I'm kidding you, of course, but yeah. no, that's the reason I grew that thing is, is I, there, I mean, there's just, uh, I had spent so much time on this and then they were going to tell me that I wasn't going to be able to interview him, um, thinking we might catch him any day, you know, which, yeah. you know, 19 <laughs> years later, then I didn't need a mustache because my hair was all white, yeah. so... <laughs> Yeah, which we're going to get into in just a second. So let's let's kind of bring this phase of your life complete because things started winding down. By 1989, the task force is just down to a handful of people. A lot of the bodies, uh, people have stopped missing. You're recovering very few bodies at that time. Uh, even though Andrea Marion Childers, she was recovered on uh, October 11th, 1989. That's kind of the last body, not kind of, it is the last body for quite a while. And so... You moved on, right? You took the sergeant's exam, um, and you got promoted, right? But it's not into the job you wanted. You really wanted to go into homicide. In fact, uh, yeah, I, I went to patrol, uh, and then a uh, homicide sergeant's position opened up. And I, I called 
I, I, I submitted my, my uh, request to be transferred from patrol to the homicide sergeant spot. I mean, I, I wanted to get back into Green River again, and I also wanted to follow in the footsteps of my good friend, Sam, who was a sergeant there when he died, when he was killed. And um, I got a call from the field operations chief, and he said, um, okay, I got your request, but it's not going to happen. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, we're going to give it to so-and-so. And I said, well, that guy's never even been in homicide. He's never worked a homicide case. And he said, well, that's why we're putting him there. He needs that experience. And he, he told me, he says, you may not believe me now, but um, one of these days you're going to get promoted. You're going to be in the command staff, and you need, you've been there, done that. Uh, in homicide, you need to get this experience. And I thought he was just, you know, full of baloney sausage. And uh, and I hung up angry. This is one of the times where I shouldn't have, but I should have been smart enough to figure out that he was maybe being honest with me. Uh, but I was upset because I, you know, I wanted to follow in Sam's footsteps. I wanted to be back in the Green River case. Um, I'd work patrol, but I needed the supervisory experience, and he was right. Um, so while I was out in that area, that's you know I patrolled the areas where the prostitutes were missing and where the bot some a lot of the bodies were found. So I spent my time in those areas. You know I had other duties. Obviously, we were catching armed robbers and all kinds of crooks uh, in that area. It's a high crime area, so we were it was a busy, busy, busy job. Well, you made your way up to major, you know, and and that's where things started going. And there was a phrase you put into your book, and you and Steve talked about this, and we talked about this in the pre-call. It's the issue of faith. And I think this is a good time to kind of inject this in, because in your book, and you say, Julie and I trusted in our faith and knew that God had a plan and we were his servants. It's kind of tough, as much as you've been wrapped around this case for so long, to really sit back and say, it's out of my hands. It's in somebody else's hands. And I, I told you on the pre-call, too, I said, I think one of the best things that happened to you is you did not get that position in homicide. Yep. That it, it made you come back around, you know, and do things. And so t- talk about the issue of faith, because, Steve, when you read uh, Manhunters and you watch, you don't get it from the TV series, but you get it from talking to Steve in the book. It's the issue of faith in, in, in terms of people say... You know, like, for example, Steve, how did you get through all that? You know, we're doing a whole series with Steve and Javier. How did you get through that time down there? It's the same thing with you. How did you get through what had to be incredible pressure? You couldn't have been sleeping good. Your family relationships were, you know, fragmented. You know, they were being impacted. How did you make it through just to even to get to major, considering all of the events you went through, the loss of your friend, the attacks you'd been through, and you're a major and you're still standing, albeit, you know, now your hair is graying like mine. How did you make it through? Well, yeah, you you have, uh, like any human being, going through that, you know, this sort of an experience, anything intense like this, uh, you have to have faith. Um you know, I, I can't imagine being one of the moms or the dads of one of the little girls that disappeared. It's an easy thing for me to talk about faith, you know, as a detective trying to solve the case. But can you imagine how hard it would be for the moms and the dads to hang on to their faith? You know, when their daughter's killed, 
or missing for six years and then found dead, they don't know where she is for six years. How do you hold on to faith with that kind of a loss? I mean, that's really where the strength, it, you know, mine is, just, I'm, I'm just trying to do my, my job and, you know, it was, was it hard and did I get down and, and, you know, frustrated and angry? Uh, and you know, you, your faith wanes a little bit here and there, but I didn't lose my daughter. And I think that's really where, you know, one of the, one of the fathers of one of the victims had the, a faith strong enough when Ridgeway was, uh, pleading guilty to 48 murders, one count after another in court. And then the family had their opportunity to stand and face the killer, one of the fathers stood up and said, you took my daughter's life, but I'm a Christian, and I forgive you. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Um, but we all have stuff, and so we had, you know, I had stuff, and I, I just... I, I was just not going to give up. I, I couldn't give up. And my faith was one of those things I held on to. I prayed every day and I questioned every day, God, why, why can't we solve this? Show us the, you know, show us how we can, mm -hmm. where is the answer to this? Help us find this guy. Um, don't let another person die. I mean, those, those are pleas within the prayer that, that I would pray every day. And, uh, so that faith was one thing, but you also have to have a strong family with you and your spouse, and then you have to have a strong uh, team of people around you and, and, you know, supporting you. And so I had all of those things. So that's what really, uh, and then growing up the way I did, you just don't give up. That's just, the, you, there's always a way. You never say never. Um, <clears throat> if you can't go under or over the wall, as they say, I was, I was, I'm the kind of person that goes right through the wall if, you know, if I can. So, yeah, you know, when you talk about faith and if I had gotten that homicide spot, uh, I wouldn't have gotten a spot downtown as a, uh, as the, um, sergeant in the field operations section and wouldn't have got the experience there in the administrative section to get promoted to lieutenant and captain. As a captain, I asked to be considered to be the police chief of one of our contract cities. So you'd be a captain, but the police chief for the city of Shoreline, our biggest contract city. I competed for that job with five other captains, and I lost. And I was really disappointed, but I began to understand this is where it really hit me. God has a plan. God wants you to be his captain. I didn't really get it when I was a sergeant. That's why I was a little bit angry at the chief. I talked to him years later. He totally understood. But as a captain, I applied. I get a call from the city council. They said, hey, we've chosen somebody that fits us, our, our city. Thanks for participating in the interview, but you're not the guy. I was the SWAT commander at the time. I still had a fun job. <clears throat> but uh, if I had gotten that job, I'll just say, after I got turned down for the, 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 the police chief's job, 10 months later, I was the major. I competed for the major's job, and they made me a precinct commander. That captain who got that police chief's job in Shoreline was now working for me. 
So if I had gotten that captain's job, I'd have been working for somebody else um, who would have been the major. So I had a precinct with about 250 employees out of that precinct. He was one of those 10 months after I got turned down. Then 10 months later, um, I'm, I'm uh, asked to be considered to be the sheriff. But before that, I, I was, I didn't tell you this, I know we're really going long here, but um, I was uh, in a car accident in 1990 as a sergeant. I was hit head on at 60 uh, miles an hour and I ruptured two discs in my uh, load. Well, I had that story, Sheriff, and I didn't want to make it people seem as like you were just constantly facing <laughs> I'm not making Right, I'm not making this, this up. <laughs> Yeah, I know, and it's but and this was too was you had just you had just gotten on the road, you had just gotten to patrol, you hadn't been in a uniform in a marked car for very long nope. before somebody decides to hit you head on. It hit me head on. I ruptured two discs, flat on my back for a couple months. I couldn't walk. Was crawling everywhere I, I went. I, I had um, back surgery. I went back to work. First night I'm back at work. I'm chasing some guy that had beat up his wife. I'm chasing uh, a canine handler and his dog. And we had to, I had to jump a six foot cyclone fence <laughs> and uh, did just fine with that, but dropped my flashlight in the process at two in the morning. But finally ended up with the suspect in a wrestling match in the pitch dark, and the handler calls the dog off. And come to find out, this guy had, the dog had ripped the clothes off of this guy. And however, the guy had uh, crapped his pants, so I had human crap all over me in the middle of this bed. Yeah, so I had to go home and change my uniform. This is like my first, one of my first weeks back after back surgery. Uh, but the, the important part of the back surgery story is that in 96, I had to go back in and have a second surgery because my right foot, I had a foot drop, they call it, just quit working. It was it was paralyzed mm -hmm. from some nerve damage. So I went in. I had the surgery, and um, the doc says, "I don't know if you'll get the use of your right foot back, let alone your right leg." So I went home, man, and I just started working on this, wiggling it, trying to get a toe to wiggle or something. And um, <clears throat> in the process, I'm looking in the want ads for a job because if you can't walk you can't do even as the as a major you got to be able to do the whole police job um under the retirement system i was hired under or you're out so i would have had to leave and you had to be back within six months or you're or you're gone so i was working hard to try to get walking again so i could get back to work but in the meanwhile i'm looking for like what i could do if i can't get my foot to work again and um pretty soon my I get my toes wiggling, I get my my ankle moving, I'm walking around. Um and I go back to work in March of uh February of nineteen ninety-seven. That was in December that I had the surgery as a precinct commander. I went back in February of ninety-seven as a precinct commander in March, um a few weeks later I was appointed sheriff. So two months before I'm looking for a job, the next thing I know, I'm the sheriff of the largest county in the state of Washington <laughs> and the 12th largest in the country. 
When you were telling that story about chasing the guy that crapped his pants, I thought you were going to say he had a butcher knife. (laughs) (laughs) No, fortunately, no butcher knife in that story. (laughs) Oh, well, thank goodness. Well, and that's the reason why I laid the groundwork earlier, because the laws changed again. The sheriff went from being appointed to being elected. And you got 77% of the vote in King County. Yep. So... Yeah, I think I had a couple of guys running against me, um, but uh, I was appointed. I, I had an interview with the county executive on, um, on well, I, I had a phone call from one of my chiefs on a Friday in March saying, hey, we want the command staff met, we want to put your name forward to be the sheriff. And I said, are you crazy? I've only been a major for 10 months. And he goes, no, I think everybody, if you're well-respected, blah, 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 you know, do you mind if we run your name up the flagpole? I said, okay, whatever you want to do. So I didn't think anything would come of it. Then on Saturday, I get a call. The county executive wants to meet with me on Monday. I come in Monday, go upstairs to the executive's office. I have an interview. Um, come back downstairs and that's when the chiefs were waiting for me I told them how it went I thought it went okay and then they tell me by the way you got on gray pinstripe suit pants but you have on a blue pinstripe jacket so I had the, <laughs> I had the wrong it's the most important interview in my life and I wear the wrong suit jacket with the wrong pants but on Monday night I get a uh, we get a phone call that the um, that the executive wants to meet with me on Tuesday for dinner. So I met with the executive. He walked in, sat down and said, I'd like to offer you the job of sheriff. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, I'd like to, will you take it? I said, sure. And he goes, well, wait a minute. Will you run? Because I had to run too. And I said, okay, I'll run. And he said, well, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And I said, well, (laughs) I'm an independent. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> early in my career, I figured out that was a good thing because he was a Democrat and I really wasn't. But um, I gave him the right answer. I went through three confirmation hearings with the county count- council that were pure torture um, because there was a lot of controversy around who they wanted. They already had picked who they wanted. And all of a sudden I show up. But I was uh, I was approved by the council. Uh, and was appointed the sheriff. I ran for election, won, as you said, in November, started my first elected year in January of 1998. But I had reopened the Green River case. Um, That was my chance, my opportunity to make it right. And that's the whole thing about having God having a plan for you, because had you not become sheriff and had the authority to say, let's reopen this case and focus on it, it's not to say it wouldn't have got solved, but you brought the renewed focus on it to say, we're going to do something about this, and you now have the authority to make sure that happens. Yep. I, I, I uh, transferred uh, uh, one of my chiefs who was a lieutenant in the task force. I made him the chief of the criminal investigation division. When he left, I put another. Uh, I, that was uh, Jackson Beard, and then when he left, I promoted another task force member, Faye Brooks, to the to that chief's position. They all had ties to the Green River, and that criminal investigations division was absolutely critical. They knew the case, were familiar with the case, could 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 manage the case and make sure it was getting. I put together a team of five people 
who I called my evidence review team. I called together uh, a group of past detectives and we met at Precinct 3, which is out uh, in Maple Valley area, which is about 40 miles southeast of Seattle. I had a 20 or 30 detectives show up and I asked them, I said, what do you guys think the first thing we should do in this case is because we're reopening it? And they said, go through the evidence again, make sure we haven't missed anything. So we started going through all 10,000 items of evidence. And everybody, of course, knew we had this DNA evidence. So um, we started going through evidence and that's when we finally get that call in March of 2001, submit your DNA evidence. Uh, Tom Jensen, uh, as I said, was in major crimes at the time. He submitted that evidence, and September of 2001, the results came back, and Tom called the office to make uh, to, to make a, a schedule a meeting with me to, to show me the results. And this is this is an interesting date too, because uh, unfortunately, it's September 10th, 2001, and we all know what happens on September 11th, 2001. So, but he comes in, so now you know something's going on. They're not telling you, what are you thinking and what are you feeling at this point to when he says, I got to come talk to you? What do you think is going on? Yeah, he brought Chief Brooks with him. And so I knew they had, of course, some good news. And I'm thinking it had something to do with, with the um, uh, spermatozoa. Um, but you know, with, with our evidence, but we've had like, you know, we've had these ups and downs before, so I wasn't quite sure what they had, but I, but I felt like it was going to be pretty important. And when Tom walked in and, and, uh, Faye walked in, they sat down and Tom, um, Tom lays out these three sheets of paper, um, Marsha Chapman and a really rough, graph of DNA um, profile, um, Opal Mills and a real rough graph, and they matched. So now I know from those two that the DNA profiles in two bodies are the same person. Then he throws down the third sheet of paper, and the title on that was Green River Killer, and a rough uh, graph of his DNA profile, and um, it matched the other two, and I looked at Tom and I said, "Hey, are you trying to tell me we've caught the Green River Killer?" And he didn't. He looked at me, didn't say anything. He pulls out an envelope and hands it to me. And he says, "Yeah, his name is in here." I said, "I don't even need to open that thing. It's Gary Ridgeway." He goes, "How'd you know that?" And I said, "Tom," <laughs> and just kind of laughed, you know. And so. He opens it up and pulls out the mugshot of Ridgeway, and that's the mugshot that was taken of him when he was arrested for patronizing a prostitute in 1982. It's the only mugshot we had of him. But uh, we only had him on those two at that time. And then later we connect another case, Carol Christensen, I think, with the DNA. So we have uh, three DNA matches with Ridgeway's DNA. The fourth is thrown in to the charging. Um, it's Cynthia Hines because she's with Opal Mills and Marsha Chapman. And so by association, she's charged. That case is charged. 
And then as we're continuing to go through all the evidence, we find that, that blouse, the Cynthia Hines blouse that I talked that about That was found earlier, a half a mile downriver uh, that everybody questioned, why are you collecting it? Yep. That ends up being very key because they find with new techniques, again, new science, microscopic paint spheres attached to this blouse that were transferred from Ridgeway's coveralls or from his person somehow or another um, from other clothing, paint transfer onto Cynthia's blouse. So that also connected Cynthia. Then uh, with uh, Debbie Estes, who was missing, found six years later buried uh, in South Federal Way, her blouse was recovered, a decomposing blouse. And remember, this is buried for six years. So the scientists here found microscopic paint spheres on decomposing cloth that had been buried for six years and connected Debbie Estes' body to the paint from Ridgeway's clothing. And then the third piece of paint evidence was from Wendy Caulfield, um, found in the river uh, in Kent PD's jurisdiction. Uh, it was found on her ligature that was wrapped around her neck. So we had three cases made by microscopic paint spheres and four by DNA. And we had seven cases to charge him with, uh, which we did. And um, he, he pled not guilty. Um, but when we only had the DNA evidence, the attorney's um, response in the news media was, well, well, we we stipulate to the fact that, you know, it's probably his DNA. He admits to patronizing prostitutes. The whole idea of patronizing a prostitute is to leave a sample behind. That doesn't mean he killed them. He just, he had sex with them. Somebody else killed them. Once the pain evidence came in, though, uh, they had a difficult problem on well, their Well, expound on the pain evidence, because it was more than just pain evidence. What was it unique to that tied Gary into this? So Ridgeway was a, um, a truck painter at Kenworth Trucking. So the reason he had paint on his clothes is that he was painting semi-trucks. Just to show you a little bit about the work that we went into, into finding, um, you know, every type of paint that he would have used in the 80s when he was painting there. We tracked down every semi-truck uh, with specific colors that came out of the Kenworth plant in Seattle all across the country. So we sent FBI agents and detectives to every truck owner who owned a truck that would have been painted by Gary Ridgway. <laughs> and asked them if we could take a paint scraping from their semi-truck. Now, a lot of them, you know, that's their baby. So we had to find a discreet place to get this little paint off their truck. But that's the work we went through to collect that paint. So the reason that paint evidence is so important that Ridgeway transferred from Kenworth Paint, uh, painting the trucks, to his clothing, from his clothing to those three items that were found with the victims. Sheriff, what was the feeling like, first of all, when you realized you finally got your guy? I mean, we're talking September 10th, 2001. You've been on this case since since technically July, but August 12th, 1982. We're, we're talking, you know, 
19 years at this point, going on 20 years. What's it like to finally get that news to says, you finally can see that there's yeah. an end in sight? Well, when, when Tom, you know, laid that out for me like that, I, uh, I can't even begin to tell you what it felt like. It was, you know, disbelief at first. I think Tom uh, was, you know, kind of in that state too, as well as the chief. Um, I was excited. But at the same time, I, I, you know, we knew we had a lot of work to do now. I mean, it was just, again, it was beginning, right? I mean, it had been gone going, but now it's beginning. So now we got to prove it. So we put him under surveillance again. Uh, we discovered that he was out there again, not as frequently as he was before, but he was out there. He hit on one of our decoys and we said, OK, we, we've got we've got to arrest him. So we arrested him. Uh, on November 30th of 2001. And uh, that was on the same day, uh, at November 30th, 1999. Uh, I was involved with the, I was the sheriff at the time of the WTO riots here in Seattle. And uh, so November 30th, 2001, there were a group of rioters out in the streets in Seattle, attracted a bunch of media attention. And they were celebrating the anniversary of WTO riots. And so we sent out a, a notice to the news media. Uh, if you really want to be, uh, you know, um, if you want to, if you really want to get some news today, you won't want to miss this press conference that the sheriff's going to have at whatever time I held this press conference. And we're very you know, secretive about it, obviously. But the, the news media is asking, what, what do you mean? What was the secret? We wouldn't tell them. They left the WTO protesters, <laughs> came to the sheriff's office for my press conference. The protesters are going, now what do we do? So they all went home. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I just laid out a strategy for ending all protests mm -hmm. in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just called... <laughs> just call the news media off. Nobody's watching did, them. They'll go did any right. of this information leak, though, before your press conference? Because, you know, the media has their ways. They have their sources. But did did this, did your secret stay intact up until the media uh, press release? Yes. Yep. I couldn't. It was one of the very few times that once, once Tom came in, gave me this information, it was Tom, Chief Brooks, and I were the only ones who knew uh, what was going on. And uh, and then we started our our surveillance. Those those detectives obviously knew. Uh, and my um, once we arrested him, well, my 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 executive assistant knew also because she you know I'm going to be gone, so <laughs> she's got to know uh, how to kind of finesse what's going on with the sheriff's schedule, but. Um, we weren't able to keep that a secret. The news media showed up. We gave the information. They tried to get me to say over and over he was the Green River Killer as much as I wanted to say he was. We only had seven bodies. Uh, but again, once we had those uh, uh, paint bodies, it didn't take the, the paint evidence. It didn't take too long before the um, the, the, the detectives were talking about possible deal internally the the prosecutors and the 
uh, defense attorneys met, cut the deal. We were asked, you know, sheriff and the, and and I went out to the detectives and said, "Hey, uh, what do you guys want to do?" And not one person said, uh, "Hang him or electrocute him, put him to death, whatever." We need to find out what the hell happened. We need to we need to find out what happened for the sake of the rest of these families. Seven families would have answers to questions, um, but the other families deserve to know too. And um, so we decided to make this deal. And once we decided, if you think about it, it just makes sense because there's not many choices. If if you charge him with seven, and you go to trial. He can be found not guilty. You know, stranger things have happened. If you go to trial with the seven and he's found guilty, then you go to the penalty phase. Uh, it only takes one juror, juror in the penalty phase to say, you know what, I just can't kill a, another human, human being. No matter how bad he is, I can't do it. So he ends up getting life in prison anyway. And we get no answers. And he's never going to confess if he's if he's sitting there. Or the jury could say, put him to death. Well, we know in the state of Washington that was never going to happen. Uh, appeal after appeal after appeal was going to be filed. He'd be sitting in prison waiting on death row um, and never be put to death and never talk to us. So... We we were it was clear to us the only choice was make the deal, find as many bodies as we could, and get as much information as we could on the others. And we ended up having him plead to forty eight, uh, guilty on forty eight. Eventually, found another one in two thousand eleven. He pled guilty to the forty ninth victim. We closed fifty one cases. Two of them we just didn't quite have enough to charge, but we know he did it. He admits to doing them, but we just couldn't. We couldn't make the connection strong enough. So, but we we solved fifty one cases. He pled guilty to to forty nine. And I think to put this in perspective too, you talk about the deal. He was arrested November thirtieth, two thousand one. It took till June of two thousand three between lawyers and the legalities to work everything else. And then it was another five and a half months after that. He's in a secret facility being interviewed. You're going into excruciating detail. He actually gets to make a few field trips out there to help uh, help you locate some additional bodies, points you in the direction. Uh, so, it, you know, at some point, this eventually has to come to a conclusion. But it comes to a conclusion with once they've realized they've extracted as much as they can out of Gary, they've identified all the bodies. You get the last word, in a sense, with Gary Ridgway. And this is really your first time talking with him. So walk people <laughs> through the fact is that as the sheriff... As much as you wanted to be out there and make the arrest, as much as you wanted to be on the arrest team, that was not your job at that point. That's one of the things you had to learn, right? So that was tough. But talk about how tough that was, and then talk about your time with Gary Ridgway, how that went, and what you guys talked about. Yeah. Well, you know, my the detectives that were working on the case had worked with me on the case when I was a detective. <laughs> so now I'm the sheriff. So they know me very well. Mm -hmm. So they came to me and said, uh, <clears throat> the captain came in and said, uh, Sheriff, uh, you know, me and the detectives were talking a little bit, you know, and, you know, I just want to, they, they were kind of, you know, wondering, you, you know, uh, you, you really can't, 
be, you know, the, the guy interviewing the, you know, he's trying to put it very politely <laughs> and trying not to offend me. So I finally said, look, I know I can't be the guy I, I want to be. Um, and they all knew I wanted to be. Uh, but I said, look, that's not my job anymore. I, I'm the sheriff. So, um, it, that was hard. And I went to the, I, I went to the, uh, command post, which was at the, uh, RJC, the, the, the criminal, the regional justice system in Kent. Uh, I listened to the arrest on, on the radio <clears throat> and what struck me was we had people undercover in in Kenworth trucking, keeping an eye on him all day. We didn't want to lose track of him. And he walks out at the end of the day. He's done with work. He walks into the parking lot. We have a, a uh, you know a black SUV drives up. Detective jumps out. Ridgeway's got his lunch pail in his hand. Are you Ridgeway? Yes, I am. Uh, you're under the arrest. You're under arrest for the murders of. And they list the victims off. He says all he says is okay hands him his lunch bucket, gets in the car, they handcuff him, put him in the car, drive him to the RJC, and uh, begin to interview him. And they read him his rights. He wants a lawyer, but we still interview him. Uh, a def- now, all of a sudden, people are hearing that we have him in custody, and we're getting some calls from the public defender's office. You've got my client, <laughs> and they don't even know who he is, right? So... They show up there. Now you have to allow the attorney in. So I did that, took the detectives out. Attorney goes in. I gave them about a half an hour. They're continuing to talk. It's late at night. And I finally just said, you know what? We're all going home. And he's going to jail. And if they want to continue this discussion, they can go downtown. And they can they can finish this discussion in jail. So I knock on the door, open the door up, and I said, you know, conversations over attorney says no i'm not done talking to him yet i said i don't give a shit if you're done talking to him yet um you can you can talk to him downtown this conversation's over so my detectives put the cuffs on him and walk him past me and i leaned forward right in his face and i said gotcha asshole and he didn't say a word i mean he and he looked away quick and kept right on walking but i i got a you know, a, a second of satisfaction <laughs> out of out of that one. <clears throat> he knew who I was. And before we, there's one thing I failed to bring up, uh, and I want to bring up because it is one of the most interesting. Speaking of interviewing serial killers, this is actually going to be your second interview of a serial killer. This was not your first. Your first was Ted Bundy in Florida. And I mean, I know that came through that Ted wrote a letter, said, hey, I can help you with, quote, the river man. But, you know, I, I neglected and I feel bad because I, I, I'm i OCD. I'm like you guys. So, you know, I want to keep things in logical order. And we miss this. Steve, I blame you because you weren't on top of things. You were snoozing. Well, no, <laughs> no, you were taking a nap. I saw you. We're on video, remember. So but but Sheriff, go back and talk about just let's put this in a, a quick encapsulation. But. You actually, your first interview with the serial killer was Ted Bundy, and it came because he reached out to say, I can help you with the Riverman case. Yeah, so he sent a letter to Bob Keppel, I think, first, and then there was there was another letter or two after that that may have been addressed, I think, to both of us. Um, but his thing was, hey, been reading about the Riverman. I think I can help you get into the mind of a serial killer. 
uh, don't ask me why. Just just know that maybe I may may have some insight there. So Bob and I were assigned to go to Florida to, to Stark Prison and interview Bundy. We didn't expect, of course, to get any deep insights from him, but um, uh, you know we could get some idea of how he thought. Anyway, every ser- ser- serial killer is different. Obviously, um, we were hoping that he might make some admission to maybe a case or two in in the state of Washington. That was our our big hope. But uh, when we first arrive at the prison, we're told. Uh, by the guard. Yeah, he was expecting you, but he's got a visitor. You'll have to come back oh, the, later. The, the, the killer on <laughs> death row has a full schedule, does he? <laughs> oh, see, yeah, you'll have to check with his scheduler. So Bob and I are just shaking our heads going, okay, so we'll come back later. So we go back to the our hotel and wait. And, um, <clears throat> but the interview with Bundy, uh, you know, there's there's a few things that, are, that stick out of my mind. The first uh, is when I first met him. Uh, he's trying to be, you know, your buddy. Uh, hello, hey, welcome to my home kind of a thing. You know, sticks his hand out, wants to shake your hand. And I hesitated for a moment because I just thought, well, man, just think of the people that he's killed with these hands. Now, do I really want to, do I really want to shake that guy's hand? I did because there's stuff you want to get from him, right? Uh, you guys can put yourself there. I mean, there's been interviews I've been with other killers. You put your arm around them, you know, get them to cry, and all of a sudden they say, yeah, I killed a guy, and here's why. So I'm shaking his hand, but I just can't get this, like, you see in the movies, you know, like this flashback of people being strangled in the hand I just shook. And that's one thing that struck me. The other was that he's, you know, he's nervous, but he's trying to act relaxed. You can see the old jugular vein pounding away, you know, and and the beads of sweat kind of forming a little bit. They bring him in a tray of food, and he just mixes it around, stirs it all up. He's not eating anything. Um, the whole time he's talking about himself, talking in the third person, you know, your river man will do this, your river man will do that. Your river man went to X-rated movies. He'll have sex with the dead bodies at the scene. Um, and of course, these are all things that Ted Bundy did. So um, it was two and a half days of a very interesting interview and, you know, some insight into at least what he was he was doing and he was thinking. And and then as we talked to Ridgeway, find out found out that, of course, some of that was true with Ridgeway also. How much of what you found from Ted actually helped you in the case? Anything, just insights, or did he actually provide you any material things that helped you solve this case or added to the case, you know, in one way or another? No, I think, you know, any detective, you know, working on a homicide case or any other case where your suspect has eluded you for a while, you know, even a serious robbery case where you're trying to run somebody down, you, you always try to put yourself in their place. Okay, I, I, you know, I've just committed this crime. I've just killed this person. Now what, now what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I see? How do I get there? And you try to put yourself in that mindset. And, and sometimes you can do that with crooks that know, you know, um, that, that have emotions and don't want to get caught and, and 
care about their family, don't want their family hurt, don't want them involved, you know, you can kind of figure that out because it's sort of a human connection there. But with a guy like Ridgeway or Bundy, um, you know, they're like as we've talked about before, there's no human emotion there. They don't care. So the difficulty for us is how do you put your mind in, into the mind of a non-human, really? A person without a personality, uh, a person without, a, you know, a, a heart, person without a soul, really. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do for somebody who, who is a Christian, somebody who has a heart, cares about people. Hard to put yourself in the mind of somebody who doesn't have a heart or a soul. And so I guess Bundy sort of gave us some insight into a heartless, soulless person. Jeez. Well, that's, that's just scary. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, both times, I, you know, you look into Bundy's eyes, you looked into Ridgeway's eyes, and I think I say in the book, you know, I mean, it's like staring into e- evil in the, in, in the face, like that you're, you're looking at the devil. It's a dark, deep hole, both of these guys. Yeah. And it's, it is, it is, uh, it's indescribable if you're sitting across the table from these guys. Uh, it's an eerie feeling. Well, we're bringing this to a close, and there's a, I want to finish out the case, but then I want to talk to you about your career afterwards and some of the stuff you've been involved with. But I think one of the key things that kind of, it's it's the, it's not that there's, I think closure is a fiction. You never get closure, you get resolution. But for you, it seems like one of the most important things you engaged with was your chance. You were the final person that actually talked to Ridgeway, and you spent three days with him. What what led you to being the one to interview him? What was the strategy behind that? And what came out of those three days? <laughs> yeah, well, not a whole lot of strategy, but um, a lot of desire <laughs> on my part to get my to get my licks in, I guess. Um, so even as they didn't want me to be in, on the arrest, which I totally understood, they also said, you know, we're going to have an interview team and probably sheriff you shouldn't be one of the main people interviewing even though you've been to every one of the homicides every one of the scenes and i said no you're you're right i mean the sheriff shouldn't be the detective um because i don't have time to go in and out to go back and research every detail of every case plus that's not my job any anymore so i have a sheriff's office of you know 1100 plus people to run so, however, I was there every day for six months. Uh, nobody knew where I was except for the task force people and my executive assistant. So when people needed to meet with me, she would make excuses or we would schedule them in between uh, times when I wasn't there for the Ridgeway interviews because I wasn't missing that. We had a room set up with, uh, with, with a TV, with monitors, and computers. So when the interviewers were in interviewing Ridgeway, if I had a question, I could I could actually type the question into the computer and send it send it to the um, people that were interviewing him in the interview room. So in a way, I got some my own questions in on, on some of the cases that I some of the sites that I'd been to and families that I'd met um, some of the victims' families, but. When we were all done with all the details of all the cases, um, I said, I, I need my time with him. I, gotta, I have to talk to this guy. And so um, 
I think it was a couple of days, two days, two and a half days. But the idea was, I guess the strategy that you might be referring to is sort of an intimidation factor, and the FBI kind of agreed with this. The Some news media people that saw this recording of this interview episode later accused me of grandstanding and 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 knowing that it would be somehow published later would catapult me into this this persona that would further my career in politics which was the last thing from my mind if you stop and think about it all all my life I've been after this guy and I get a chance. Who wouldn't want to want to get in there and have a chance to be, you know, to talk to him? You have to do that. I mean, that's why I wanted in there. I didn't. I wasn't thinking, gee, I'm going to have this thing recorded. Later, I'll have it released to the news media, and then I'm going to run for Congress. How ridiculous is that to even <laughs> suppose? So. Uh, I think some people were afraid of that happening. It did happen, but, um, you know, it's just the way it kind of went. But no, it was not premeditated at all. But uh, the strategy was where all the bling that the sheriff has, right? Just all the stars and the bars and my stars of years of service and a couple of valor awards on my chest and and my dress uniform and sort of intimidate him and, you know, um, but first, I tried to kind of saddle up to him a little bit and get this thing going where he and I were, you know, he got to the point where he was pretty comfortable with me and he's telling me these jokes. They're very uh, dark, uh, sexual, um, disgusting jokes. And when people watch that, they go, well, why is the sheriff laughing at these awful, awful, disgusting jokes? Well, I had a job that I wanted to do, and that was to get whatever drop of information I could get out of that guy. I'm thinking, and, and that's the hardest thing is, you're thinking in your mind, I hate this son of a bitch. I don't like a damn word he's saying. I have total hate, hatred and disgust almost for him, you know. Even though you're Christian, you're, you're going through all this things but I want to I want to see if I can get him to confess to one more and I'm a I you know like I say I put my arm around killers before patted them on the back and cajoled them into a confession um, it wasn't thought that this might work with him but uh, it was worth a try and then that didn't work so then I got into this intimidation mode you know where I, I just kind of lean into him and he you can see in some of the video he starts leaning back where he's almost bent backwards right out of his chair he doesn't say a word I just keep slowly moving forward closer and closer and closer with my evil eyeball right on him and um, I you know it was worth it for me I know the detectives um, was kind of them to you know to agree the defense attorneys to agree to allow me that moment but I got to talk to him one, one last time too it was on December 31st 2000 and, and uh, so 2003 yeah no, November 13th right. is the uh, plea bargain that was your interview with him and I think December 31st of that year of 2013 yep he'd right be Right before he went to prison, I went up to the jail, 
and uh, spent an hour with him trying to get him to say, because my, my thought then was be my last chance to talk to him. Uh, and I wanted to see if he'd tell me, you know, one more thing. Um, and my play was he claimed to be a Christian. You know, he was reading the Bible at Kenworth Trucking, and he doesn't know what wrong because he read the Bible every day, but he doesn't know why he did what he did, just because he could. And he liked it. And uh, so I said, so you think you're a Christian? Yep. And I said, so you know that being a Christian means that you confess your sins? He said, yep. And I said, so you know you need to confess your all of your sins. That means you can't keep any secrets to yourself on this case. If you haven't told us about every body, you're not going to heaven. <laughs> that's that's how I came at it. He pulls out a prayer that he had in his pocket that one of the chaplains had written down for him that he prayed every day. I don't even remember what it says anymore. And I said, well, that's that's good. You keep praying that prayer, and I hope that God forgives you someday. And I walked out of that interview room and I haven't seen him since. I know that some of the detectives have been over there to Walla Walla State Pen and talked to him, but they haven't really gotten much more from him at all. Because there's been a cu- there's been a couple more cases that were made. Rebecca Marrero, um and you there's still two Jane Doe's that are unidentified, but you still identified two of the remaining ones. Jane Doe B ten was Wendy Stevens. Jane Doe B sixteen was Sandra Major. So there is some resolution, you know, to the cases. But there's three additional victims uh, haven't been able to link. You know that it's they're tied up with him, but it's uh, Kelly McGinnis, Case Lee, and Patricia Osborne. So we're hoping at some point, um, you know, we can make connections on that. Let's let's close out with Gary because, um, you know, I want to ask you this question. I have my own thoughts, and let me tell you my thought first and see if I'm somewhere near. Um you never get everything out of a criminal suspect. They they don't tell they I have very rarely run into anybody who tells you 100% of anything. I mean, Steve, I mean, you were debriefing people. Did you ever feel somebody just cut gave you everything till it bleeds or did you feel like people were holding there's always some piece they hold back on you? Well, they hold back and and you know, when we would you're sitting there debriefing them on their criminal career with their defense attorney in the same room and you're spending days with them, nothing like what you guys did. But, you know, you're telling them, anything that you tell me about now, I can't charge you with. Uh, but don't tell me about capital crimes. Don't tell me about any murders you committed, which I always thought was, you know, that's a big handcuff to place on a, a criminal investigator. Because if somebody wants to uh, own up to a murder, just like the sheriff here is talking about, where you could bring closure to a family, it's got to bring peace of mind to somebody. But you felt like they were always holding back. Even even though you're telling them, you can plead guilty to anything, or you can tell me about anything and I cannot charge you with it. You always felt like there's just something that, uh, in their minds, for whatever reason, maybe they think it's heinous the way something happened. They just don't, uh, they don't give you 100%. And the reason I said that, Sheriff, is I believe Ridgeway, this is my thought, tell me, this is Morgan's theory of the case, tell me how far off base I am, but Ridgeway would not tell you everything because he gave up a lot, which he gave up his, quote, possessions. He owned those bodies. He, those were his possessions. And I think he gave up a lot. And I, my thought is, one of the reasons he wouldn't tell you everything is still in his mind. 
Maybe he has his fantasy that he'll get out someday, but there are he knows where some of the other bodies are, but in his mind, that's something still for him to possess, and he didn't want to give you everything because he needed to own something to be able to get through prison, um, you know, or at least survive in prison. And those are his private thoughts, but I'm thinking that he didn't give those things up to you because he still wants to own at least some of the bodies. Yeah, and those are, are so he's got special victims. and. Malvar was one of those he was angry at. That's why he put her in a separate place. He didn't want to put her with other. He made her suffer, he thought, more by putting her alone and because she fought and bit him. And uh, he didn't tell us about those that mean a lot to him. And so this is the kind of guy that's going to sit in prison and he survives in that eight foot by ten foot cell by replaying every one of the every one of the killings and especially in in this video of his in his mind he plays the ones that we don't know about and he can sort of chuckle to himself i got away with those even though he's sitting in prison going nowhere for the rest of his life he got away with them because we don't know about them and there may have been something connected to that case that as steve said that he that he thinks is so hideous, more hideous than what he's already told us, could be another reason why he's not sharing that with us. It's just, a, you know, it's, it's a great example of a perverted criminal mind. And these guys, I mean, they're taking it to the extreme. That's that's the one that's way out there on the end. Thank God it's not the norm. Well, yeah, because on the right. one hand, you've got a Gary Ridgway. On the other hand, in your case, Steve, you've got a Pablo Escobar who's responsible for the death of thousands of people and doesn't think twice about having an entire family killed. And you go, what kind of a world are these guys allowed to exist in? You know, and you start questioning things. Right. Um, but let's 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 finish out this last part with you were responsible and I say you collectively because you had a big team behind you, uh, and, uh, responsible for the changes in a way a lot of things were done, including helping advance the use of DNA, processing outdoor crime scenes, the investigation of serial crimes. There's a lot of things that came out of this that are affecting law enforcement to today and some of the work you continue to do. So out of this, what are some of the things that you think that will provide a long term impact for how crimes like this are investigated about the impact that it will have uh, for other cops that are now taking on cases and doing outdoor crime scenes or underwater crime scenes. What are some of the big things that came out of this that you point back to and you go, this was a terrible time. This was a terrible case, but I am proud of the things we were able to build out of this case to help in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, we're proud that we solved the case that we, that we could uh, find every item of evidence. You know, how many cases have you heard about that <clears throat> when they're ready to they catch the guy, they're ready to go to trial and they've lost the gun, <laughs> right? Can't find the gun in the evidence locker. We had 10,000 items of evidence. We found it all. We had it all with no computer help in the beginning. Uh, 40,000 tip sheets and all that could have been called into question if we had gone to trial. We had all of that with no computers in the beginning to help us at all organize any of that. So we're, pr we're proud of that effort. We, we developed our own tip sheets. We developed our own evidence tracking system. We developed our own way of doing outdoor crime scenes on hands and knees and tweezers and, and, and cordoning off 
areas and how to take photographs um, uh, in, in, you know, different light and different settings, etc. I taught, uh, part of my job was to teach outdoor crime scene processing. I wrote a paper with the medical examiner. Uh, I I think it was probably written sometime in the 90s. It's uh, in the University of Washington Library. I don't know if people still refer to it today. It'd be pretty archaic uh, in comparison to the technology now that's used to measure crime crime scenes and uh, document, uh, you know, the, the position of the bodies and evidence, etc. But I I taught at the Canadian um, military CID units up up in the Vancouver area. I've taught at our own Army CID units here in the States. I've taught at the FBI Academy on outdoor crime scene processing. I've helped uh, with, across the country, I would get during this time letters from other detectives, calls from other detectives, hey, I've got uh, you know, a couple of bodies here. How do you guys do this? How do you guys do that? I would respond. I have all this documentation too in my follow-up. I'd respond back to them, say, here's a copy of our tip sheet. Here's a copy of, uh, of our evidence tracking form. Here's how we do outdoor crime scene processing. Here's the paper attached to it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's evolved, obviously has to with the new technology since then, but I think it laid the foundation for extreme um, uh, detail, for extreme um, under extreme circumstances, sifting sifting mud, working in the rain, working. I recovered bodies in the desert in eastern Washington because we knew how to do our outdoor crime scenes. So um, all of that, uh, you know, I think is a team we're proud of that we developed all those. That was the foundation of where things are today the other thing that we that we did was in the world of missing persons so back in the day um you know if somebody were to call a comm center and say hey my daughter's missing the policy back then i think nationwide was well call us back in 24 hours because they probably just ran away or give it another 48 hours and you know call us um because more than likely she's staying at a friend's house and she'll be back tomorrow well, you lose 24 hours. Uh, you know, if it's a missing person today, they take a missing person's report. Somebody investigates it. At least they should be. I don't know. There may be some police departments in today's world that don't. But that missing person case should be taken immediately, investigated immediately. That's how you're going to catch these guys because you get that DNA evidence right away. You can get that into the database and make a match. And boom, you got your guy, maybe with one rape, maybe with one uh, killing, instead of, imagine this, in 1982, if we had DNA pro, we, if we had DNA, DNA science then, Ridgeway was arrested in 82 for patronizing a prostitute. If we, uh, in some states today, they're taking DNA sample swabs, right? They're swabbing the cheeks and they're taking their DNA profile and entering it to our uh, uh, CODIS database. <clears throat> if we had that in 1982, we would have had Ridgeway's DNA profile when he was arrested patronizing a prostitute in the CODIS system. We would have had those first victims, Chapman and Mills, would have had spermatozoa. We would have had a DNA sample, a DNA profile. 
we would have matched it probably the next day or two, matched that in CODIS with Ridgeway, we'd have had six dead bodies instead of 65. You know, and that's this has been something that you have followed through in your career. Um, you know, uh, I've really thought about talking about some other stuff like Congress and stuff, but you know, that's you went on to serve in Congress for six years, but I'm 14. Oh, I'm sorry, how many? No, it was six years. years. It felt like 14 is what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) Seven Seven terms. terms. Oh, my. I'm sorry. I I shortchanged you on your uh, longevity uh, in Congress. (laughs) Thank you. Which is funny because we got to talk in the first committee you were on, the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee is the committee I testified before uh, back in 2013. So, you know, we start looking at it's a very small world. But you took... but. But even through Congress, talk about some of the things you did in Congress and even in your work later uh, with some of your government affairs and consulting to where you have focused on the use of rapid DNA. And you've used DNA. You talk about some of the South American countries. Uh, Talk about some of your work in that area and what you've been doing because of the Green River Mm -hmm. Killer case. Well, you know, you 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 continue it with the passion for what you have. And so what what I looked for are ways to help. kids who who need help so we focused on foster kids and foster kids for years it's been defined as a success if you can keep the foster child in the foster care system but that's not success because they're moving from home to home to home to home school to school to school to school maybe from state to state nobody to call family success is a family in one school friends a normal life if there is a normal life, as close to you as you can get to, to providing that loving, caring family environment for a child. So I worked on legislation that focused on on those things. I focused on domestic violence cases, having grown up in a home, survived domestic violence, several fights with my dad, physical, physical fights, uh, almost resulting in the loss of my right thumb in, in one of those fights. Um, focused on domestic violence and stopping domestic violence, focused on helping the foster care kids, focused on legislation that help uh, direct resources to stopping human trafficking. Those are the things that I uh, really worked on in Congress, although I did uh, later get assigned to the Ways and Means Committee and was a part of negotiating um, trade agreements with Colombia, with um, um, I took a trip to, I was in Medellin, so it was way after Pablo Escobar, obviously, but uh, wow. Uh, Panama trade agreement, uh, South Korea, um, Japan, uh, those, those are things that I you know, was involved in quite a bit. And then when I got out of Congress, I, you know, I finally decided time to go, so I left two years ago. I've only been away two years. But I took a job right away working in Central America in five countries, um, Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, in trying to stop human trafficking. Um, not focused so much on the immigration of human beings, but on the human trafficking, prostitution side of it, which, of course, they're obviously connected because these kids are kidnapped by gangs like MS-13, taken across the border, used and abused all the way up from Honduras all the way to the Mexican border into the United States. There are 7,000 unidentified remains in Texas 
that are not that don't have a CODIS hit with their DNA profile. Uh, so we're trying to identify those bodies, trying to build DNA databases in those five countries to identify human remains scattered from Honduras to Texas. Also tracking, though, missing persons. Also trying to stop bringing children across that, for example, somebody shows up at the border. My name is, you know, Tom Smith. This is my daughter. We can swab Tom's no, uh, Tom's cheeks, put it in a machine, and 90 minutes we'll know whether or not that's really his name. Then we can swab the child, put that in a, in a machine. It's about the size of a microwave. We'll know in 90 minutes whether or not that's his child or even related remotely at all. If not, we can try to find a match in the DNA databases we're building in those countries and return the child to the family. So that's the work that I'm doing down there right now. That's phenomenal. You know, and and that what you're saying there kind of coincides with a little, I don't know, a little mantra I've come up with lately that just because we retired doesn't mean that our oaths expired. You know, and you're living yeah, proof like of that, that, that you're continuing to do what you can to help your fellow man. Uh, you've you've had a stellar career. You've you've encountered things that most law enforcement officers never encounter. Thank God, uh, your perseverance and your tenacity to follow through on an investigation. And you know, at the same time, you got to have the family support to make all this happen because most women would walk away from something like this. Uh, your wife, my wife, uh, and I know Morgan's wife's got to be the same because I can't really get along with him anyway. But. Uh, we all have our challenges, right? <laughs> yeah, but, he's starting to wear on me right about now, too. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. But it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a, a true testament to what one person can do in their life. If they get that focus on, you stay focused on your mission and you follow through. So uh, this has been a much more, much longer interview than we anticipated, but an unbelievable interview to find out all that you've been through. I mean, wow, what a true American hero. You're a patriot, Dave. Uh, yeah, well, Proud well, to know you, no, sir. Proud no. to know I you. I want to, want to close out with two quick questions for you. Um, one of them is, when is the first time you actually slept soundly after, you know, you had to, What what are your dreams at night like? Because... I don't have, like I said, near the experience. I know, Steve, you've got this from Columbia, but you, you have those cases, you have those things where you still, they're still in your head, right? What, are, How are you sleeping, and when was the first time you finally could really let go of this case and say, I can now actually relax and, you know, I hate to say get a decent night's sleep, but be able to sleep through the night and not have nightmares or these visions pop up? Yeah, no, I think about this case all the time still. Um, but I, <clears throat> I've always been a light sleeper anyway, I think, uh, through my childhood because of all the, 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 the racket caused by the domestic violence. Um, you know, we were always awakened in the middle of the night and hiding in closets and running outside and hiding under the house in the crawl space. Um, so, uh, yeah, now I just take a little bit of melatonin or something <laughs> like that, you know, to help you out. But I, you know, after I was stabbed, um, I there was a, a long time there where you you're you know you're waking up and you're 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 fighting, you know, and 
uh, I've you know I've kicked kicked my wife and punched her a few times in the middle of the night, and she's punched me back saying, or if I start moving around, she's saying you're you gotta wake up, you're having a nightmare, and usually it's usually it's about when I was a kid, or it's you know getting it's uh, one of the events in the police work thing. Um, or every now and then it's, it's a vision of a body, but, uh, that's not happening as much as I think the older you get, it's, it's kind of, it, it fades, fades a little bit more. And I'll tell you the last thing, this is my chance to get a quick rant in. Cause I mean, obviously, you know, getting prepared for this, uh, Steve and I, we've worked, it's a good balancing act because I'm the brains and the, and, and the, and the looks and Steve, uh, you know, is he shows up <laughs> No, but, but we, we, we do a lot of, and, uh, and you're I, so I, humble too. I'll tell you, hum, humility is one of my greatest strengths. I will tell you. It just all it comes does. together. <laughs> we do so well, but I have to tell you my quick rant, uh, Obviously, I hopefully you saw too, Steve and I. We put a lot of time into this, a lot of research into this. Yes. Um, we wanted to really figure out what are some good questions we could tell you. And I have to tell you, one of the things that pissed me off the most was the documentary from ID Discovery on the Green River Killer. Eighty-three minutes talking about the Green River Killer, and the name Dave Reichert is not mentioned once. In that documentary, you have five seconds of video where you're as sheriff, you're announcing the arrest of him. And, and I'm not disparaging some of the other people in there because there are people, names you know, that did good work. But how did this come about? How did it come about is that somebody like an ID Discovery would do a, would do a documentary and not talk to the lead investigator. And let me ask you this question and then you answer that one. How many crime, how many of those bodies, how many of those crime scenes were you at the scene of? I I can't think of one I wasn't at. There might have been one or two, but I was at just about almost so every how, one of them. So how do you get how do you get a media all. company then making a documentary <clears throat> without talking to the single most I, and I, I say important in a sense of important to the case? Uh, you know, bring me off of a ledge because it's like with Steve. We talked about people well, want to claim credit. This irritated me when I watched this, and I'm filing an official complaint with ID Discovery over it. By the way, <laughs> well. Uh, sometimes when I'm asked, I ask, I interview the people that want to do the show. I usually interview the people that want, just like you gave me a lot of background, which helped me make a decision. But if their focus is on Ridgeway or the family, I mean, the Ridgeway's family, and they never mentioned to me, hey, I really want to focus on the victims and I want to victim on the victims' families. Or if they never say, we really want to find out what drove the detectives to do, then I just, I say no. I don't, I won't do it. And so then they, then they'll go and try to find somebody else because they've made a decision to do the show. Most of the ones that you see, um, Tom Jensen and I will be on together. Sometimes uh, Faye Brooks will be on. She played a key role. Randy Mullinex uh, was one of the interviewers and actually and and played a a real key role. You know, everybody deals with this in their own way. It's sort of like a death in the family. It's traumatic in your life. Randy, when he left, he left, and he said, "I don't want anything to more anything." You've seen guys leave the police department or DEA or right. I'm not, I'm not going into any retirement 
the Officers Association coffee clutch. I'm out. I'm going to Florida and I'm going fishing. Nice knowing you guys. Some people deal with it that way. Randy, that's the way Randy, but he was like outstanding in, in the interview and uh, in his investigation. Jim Doyen passed away, was also one of the key guys in this case. Um, there's a couple who feel like Dave Riker got too much attention and and uh, so there, there's some you know, there's some friction and conflict there. I didn't put myself here. Uh, you know, history put me here. I just happened to be the face of it. I had a great team. Every one of those detectives that worked on that case helped solve this case. I don't care if they were there six months or, you know, 10 years. Every one of them helped. Every scientist, every volunteer that typed information into those old computers, every volunteer that searched those wooded areas in the rain, the snow, the sleet, and the hot sun, they all helped to solve this case. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of disappointed sometimes when I hear about some of the shows on there where people are trying to take credit, but I think people recognize that. You know, because it's um, <clears throat> it, it took the entire team. I mean, how could anybody think that one person solved that case? There's just no way. No microphone. You're on mute. There you there go. There we go. I'm off mute now. I'm trying to be okay. resp- Hey, could you go? See what I have could to you work? go back on mute for for the sake of Steve and I? Could you mute yourself again? <laughs> <laughs> See what I have to put up with, Dave. <laughs> I was trying to leave this on a high note, and you're making this difficult. You know. I thought it was a high note, didn't you, Steve? <laughs> Absolutely, I was fine with okay. it. Okay, <laughs> the two old geezers ganging up on the young guy. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> oh, now your eyesight's gone. No, it bad. hasn't. <laughs> I can. I keep telling him he's got a face for radio. I can still see four of you. It's all good. There you go. Uh, no, I wanted to leave you with this quote because it reminds me of um, uh, this Winston Churchill, one of my favorite you know people in history and stuff. And Dave, I think this is this is for me. This is the way I would sum up your role in the case. And people came to think that Winston Churchill, you know, he was responsible for helping England lead through the war. But he had a saying. He said. I was not the lion, but it fell to me to give the lion's roar. And I think that describes you were not you were not the lion. I mean, you were one of many, but it was up to you to give a face to this case, to give an identity to this case. And you know what? You were the keeper of the purpose. If there was one person who kept the flame burning on all these cases throughout the years, that was you. And history, when it looks back on it, will say, just like Winston Churchill, you gave the victims' families a voice. And there's no higher honor than, like they say in the homicide, there is no greater honor to be bestowed upon somebody than the investigation into the death of another human being. And I just want you to know, from from me and I know from Steve, uh, history will show, and I will tell you right now, you have acquitted yourself well, my friend, and you have done the Lord's work in a way I doubt very few of us could have ever done. Very true. I don't agree with him very often, but uh, I guess I will this time. (laughs) I'll just say thank you to that. Appreciate it.
I tell you, Steve, this is one of the, it, it, this will go down in podcast history. Uh, and I'm not just saying that to be, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but this will go down as podcast history. I, I'm just, from my standpoint, as one of the most impactful podcast, not only do you hear the raw emotion out of Dave Reichert's voice and his dedication, but think about this. Think about what it took for 20, 20 years of your life where you're, you've got things that impact your family and everything else, 20 years, and it comes full circle to come back and finally be in a position to help close this case. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, the, I mean, the, I've never worked a case like that. And you could tell from Dave's, the tone of his voice and the stories and the reality of what really took place how consuming this was. And, and we've talked about this before, Morgan, that if you're in, in the law enforcement and you're really doing your job, it's not a nine to five, 40 hour a week job. If you're making cases and doing your best to be a public servant and serve the, the citizens that you've sworn to protect, it's a lifestyle. You know, you got to have the right kind of family. Uh, unfortunately, law enforcement has one of the highest divorce rates in any occupation. But, you know, getting back to Dave's story, I just, you get goosebumps. You listen to it again, and and uh, some of the things you just your compassion for Dave when he starts choking up a little bit. You know, it makes me choke up a little bit. It's uh, God bless him for what he did, Dave. Thank you for you and your service, and all your colleagues out there. All of you are true heroes for getting that piece of trash off the streets. Yeah, and, and folks, you know, this is dropping on a Thursday, but we did our live session with Dave on Wednesday night. So go to our uh, fan page at facebook.com slash Game of Crimes Podcast. I'll also put a link on it uh, on our webpage, episode page at gameofcrimespodcast.com. So we'll get that done. So it's just awesome stuff. So, hey, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, these two-part episode, do us a favor. Show us how much you appreciate it. Just do something simple. Go over to Apple Podcasts. Hit that five stars. It's David Copperfield. You know, it's David Blaine, you know, the street magician. It's it's just pure magic. We don't know how it works. We just know that it does, and it really helps us. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. Like I said, we'll be constantly updating it. Merch will be launching in September. Uh, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram paypal.com use our email game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes whatever it makes it easier for you to help support the show and again join us on patreon man we've got uh we're voting uh starting on the fifth for what movies we're going to review we've got another episode with steven javier uh coming out uh this this will be the fourth episode of uh, the real narcos talking about the real narcos and we've got a ton of of bonus content, don't we, Steve? Oh, absolutely. And there's more coming. That's the cool thing. You know, keep your ideas coming into us as well. Uh, when we were talking about merch, we asked for your opinions, and <laughs> we got them, and some of them were kind of strange, <laughs> but it was still curtains? a lot of fun. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking about the shower curtain. But uh, I don't know, maybe we should have that made with your your picture and my picture on the front of it, so when they were to come to the bathroom, they see I don't us. think so. I don't want cops showing up at some scene of a homicide going, what are these two jokers doing on your shower curtain? So, <laughs> Hey, but I do want to throw one other thing out. Hey, um, we've asked before, give us your comments on having Connie, my wife, on the show. She's starting to slide just a little bit towards saying yes. So, you know, I want to keep building on that. A few of you are still sending comments in, so they're all appreciated. And believe me, I have a running list that I read to her. So <laughs> want to get her Every on the morning. show. Dear Connie. Hey, by the way, too, Steve, let's tee up next week real quick because you helped bring this one together. Ken Rijok, the laundry man. Let's tee this up real quick. Yeah, so Ken was a uh, an attorney down in South Florida back in the early 1980s, and just he got hooked up with some individuals who offered him an opportunity. And he's a, I would say he's one of the original bulk cash. 
you know, bags of cash money launderers that uh, benefited from offshore banking. Now, I'm going to let you tell the story. I don't want to get too into too many details, uh, but it's funny how his life went from that to what he's doing now. And I'm going to leave it hanging at that, so you'll have to come back and find out what Ken's doing now. Is he out of prison yet? Uh, is he on death row? You know, is he running for president of the United States? I don't know. You have to come back and see. <laughs> and one tease, one tease I want to throw in there too that you have to listen. His girlfriend at the time was a cop. Yeah. Find out that, how that worked. That's wild. <laughs> that's very wild. <laughs> Moving millions of dollars and your girlfriend is a deputy sheriff in the sh- county that you're living in doing the money laundering. So we say no more. Our lips are sealed. But so join us next week uh, for episode 14. And I'm telling you, this is, again, we've got some good stuff coming your way. So everybody, thank you for playing the biggest game of all there is, the Game of Crimes. 